Many of you are probably familiar with the film uh, starring Jimmy Stewart. It's a wonderful life. And if so, you may recall that scene where George Bailey, the character who was played by Jimmy Stewart, was speaking with Clarence. And he said to Clarence, I suppose it would have been better if I'd never been born. And Clarence asked, what did you say? And George reiterated, I said I'd wish I'd never been born. Now, if you're familiar with the movie, you may remember that that day was a particularly bad day for George Bailey. His uncle and business partner, Billy, had lost $8,000 that he was supposed to deposit at the bank for their building and loan company. And it just so happened that that day, the bank examiners were checking into the finances of the building and loan and examining the books. And the misplaced $8,000 made it look like there had been some corruption somewhere along the line. And there had been a warrant issued for George's arrest. And it been a pretty bad day all around. And so it was that George said, I wished I'd never been born. Now, as we look to Job chapter 3 tonight, we see that that Job says the same thing. Now, we need to be very clear up front that Job's situation is much worse than that portrayed in the movie in regard to George Bailey. Nevertheless, their wish is for the same thing, wished that he had never been born. And this is not simply just a wish that Job expresses. He expresses himself rather vehemently. And in so doing, he crosses the line, actually, from what we might consider a godly lament and a godly way of pouring out a grieving heart before the Lord into a territory of of sinful passion and even cursing because he explicitly curses the day in which he was born. But in what he says and in how he says it, there are some great lessons for us. So let's let's look to the text, Job chapter 3. Book of Job chapter 3. Our author writes for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says... Afterward, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, excuse me, on which I was to be born, and the night which said, A boy is conceived. May that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it, nor light shine on it. Let darkness and black gloom claim it. Let a cloud settle on it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, let darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful shout enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are prepared to rouse Leviathan, Let the stars of its twilight be darkened. Let it wait for light, but have none. And let it not see the breaking dawn, because it did not shut the opening of my mother's womb or hide trouble from my eyes. Why did did I not die at birth, come forth from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me? And why the breasts that I should suck? For now... I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept then. I would have been at rest with kings and with counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves 
or with princes who had gold, who were filling their houses with silver, or like a miscarriage, which is discarded. I would not be as infants that never saw the light. There the wicked cease from raging. There the weary are at rest. The prisoners are at ease together, and they do not hear the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who suffers, and life to the bitter of soul, who long for death but there is none, and dig for it more than hidden treasures, who rejoice greatly and exult when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, and whom God has hedged in? For my groaning comes at the sight of my food, And my cries pour out like water. For what I fear comes upon me. And what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. And I am not at rest. But turmoil comes. Now, up to this point in the book of Job, we have seen nothing unbecoming in the life or the manners of Job. Indeed, we've seen that there's a resounding affirmation of him, both by the Lord himself and by the inspired writer of the book of Job. We saw that fourfold affirmation in chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 8, and chapter 2, verse 3, that Job was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. We saw how Job had conducted himself after the test of of round one, the, the loss of so much of his property, the loss of his sons and daughters, He fell to the ground in worship. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And chapter 1 closed with the affirmation that Job did not sin in what he did, nor did he blame God. In other words, he didn't speak anything that was unbecoming of the Lord. And then in round 2 of the trial, in chapter 2, when Job was attacked with these sore boils all over his body and refused the counsel of his wife to curse God and die. He said in chapter 2, verse 10, Shall we accept good from the Lord and not accept adversity? And again, the inspired writer tells us, chapter 2, verse 10, In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And now we come to Job 3. After Job has sat in silence with his friends, his friends had showed up there at the end of chapter 2, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar The Naamathite, they sat down with Job for seven days. And now, after seven days, the grief overflows and pours out. And what we need to grasp is that, in itself, the overflow of grief is neither necessarily good nor bad. It can be either good or bad, or it can contain elements of both good and bad intermingled together. How many of the Psalms come into being because of the overflow of grief. How many of the Psalms are concerned with events in the world or with events in the personal life of the author, events that bring discouragement, disappointment, despair, and so on? We're familiar with those words of lament that we often see. How long, O Lord? And this is certainly appropriate in its place when it is done in a right and godly way. But what we see here in Job chapter 3 is actually something different. How so? Well, he curses the day of his birth, and he goes on at great length about it. 
Now, we should notice that on the one hand, this is, this is a, a certain level of victory for Job because he's cursing the day of his birth, but he's not cursing God, right? That was, that was what Satan was after. Was he, was, he was trying to get Job to curse God. And so the fact that he curses the day of his birth instead of cursing God, that's, that's far better for one to curse the day of their birth than to curse God himself. But nevertheless... We need to acknowledge that this is not good. He curses the day of his birth because he did not die that day. If he had died that day, then he would have never seen the trouble that he's seen. He would not have lived the life that he lived. He would not have experienced the pain that he has now experienced. That's what he's getting at in verse 10. And he expands upon this in verses 11 through 13. He says, why did I not die at birth Come forth from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me and the breasts that I should suck? For now I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept then. I would have been at rest. He desires now to be among the dead. Whereas, as he describes it, all of the positions are, are leveled. As he puts it in verses 18 and 19, the prisoners are at ease together. They do not hear the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. To borrow the words of the poet Sir Richard Blackmore, leveled by death the conqueror and the slave, the wise and the foolish, the cowards and the brave, lie mixed and undistinguished in the grave. Now as we consider what Job is saying here, I think, I think the words of Matthew Poole were helpful when he points out what, what Job is, is actually getting at here. He said, Job meddles not with their eternal state after death, or the sentence and judgment of God against wicked men, of which he speaks hereafter, but only speaks of their freedom from worldly troubles, which is the only matter of his complaint in present discourse. In other words, Job knows of the life to come. He speaks of the resurrection in chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. He seems, I think, to possibly indicate the future punishment of the wicked, in chapter 21, verses 23 through 33. And so when Job is speaking about death as the great leveler here, it seems that what he is doing is is only speaking in a way so as to say that the dead are free from the troubles of this world. And the troubles of this world are the thing that is causing Job so much pain. And in the final verses of the chapter, Job shifts his focus from cursing the day of his birth to his pain at the fact that he is still alive and still continues on living. Let's look again to verse 20 and following. He says, Why is light given to him who suffers, and life to the bitter of soul, who long for death but there is none, and dig for it more than hidden treasures, who rejoice greatly and exult when they find the grave? Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? This is, this is Job talking about himself. Why is life given to me? I've experienced all these things. He is ready to die. He's certainly not going to take his own life, but he's done, right? He's burnt out on life. Why does God not take away his life considering how much pain and suffering he lives in. Earlier, Satan had complained that the Lord had made a hedge about Job for, for his protection. 
And now Job uses the same word here and he feels like the Lord has, has hedged him in for the purpose of suffering. Earlier, Satan had felt that he could not get in so as to attack Job. And now Job feels that there's no way of escape out of his situation now that pain and suffering have come to him. And so why, why is this a problem? Why is it problematic for Job to speak as he does, calling for the cursing of his birthday? A lot of times the birthday is a reason to celebrate. Perhaps the older you get, the less you wish those birthdays would come around and ratchet up the, the number of your years. I understand that. But birthdays are usually a cause of, of celebration. Go out go out to a meal, you have ice cream or cake or whatever. What's going on here? James says in James 3, 9 and 10 that with the tongue we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse men who've been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Point is, we're not supposed to curse. And all human life is valuable. Life is a gift and we must bless God for the life that he has given to us rather than curse the day in which we entered into the world. To curse the day upon which we were born is essentially to say that God was wrong when he and his providential government brought us into the world. And this is fault-finding with God. And there's no fault to be found in him. And though we know that Job was a righteous and godly man, and though he was well enough composed when the troubles first began to land on him, that does not absolve him from sin in the discourses that followed. And the chapters, especially at the end of the book, bear this out, that Job was not, in fact, sinless in all that he said and maintained. And so uh, the Lord says to Job in Job 38.2, he says, "'Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge?' He says in chapter 40, verse 2 to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. The Lord says in chapter 40, verse 8, Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? So the Lord is clearly not pleased with all that Job has said. Finding fault with God is never appropriate because there is no fault to find. And Job himself repents. In chapter 42, he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract. I repent in dust and ashes. The point here is that we have good internal evidence from the book of Job itself that Job was not always sinless and right in what he said. Certainly, he's a godly and righteous man. Chapters 1 and 2, he comes through with flying colors. But it is not so all the way throughout the book. And, and I think that even though we find no explicit rebuke of the Lord for him cursing the, the day of his birth here in Job chapter 3, it's interesting if we compare some of Job's sentiments here in Job chapter 3 with what we find in the life of Jeremiah. You find some similar sentiments expressed by Jeremiah. And there we have some explicit weighing in by the Lord. And so it might be helpful for us to flip over to Jeremiah. We'll look, be looking at a couple of places in Jeremiah. Let's look first at Jeremiah chapter 20. And so 
in Jeremiah 20, the setting is that, that Jeremiah has just uh, had his feet put in the stocks by the, uh, the Jewish priest Pasher, because Jeremiah is proclaiming the word of God, and Jeremiah gets, uh, gets kind of fed up with what is, is happening to him, and so he pours out his heart to God in prayer. And so just look at uh, verse 7, Jeremiah 20, verse 7. He says, O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You have overcome me and prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all day long. And he, he feels like he's doing, doing the right thing, proclaiming the word of God, and he feels like he's getting the short end of the stick. Now, he's at his best here in this, in this prayer of lament in verses 11 through 13. He says, But the Lord is with me like a dread champion. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and will not prevail. They will be utterly ashamed because they have failed with an everlasting disgrace that will not be forgotten. Yet, O Lord of hosts, you who test the righteous, who see the mind and the heart, let me see your vengeance on them. For to you I have set forth my cause. Sing to the Lord, sing praise to the Lord, for he has delivered my soul, uh, the soul of the needy one, from the hand of the evildoers. Right? It sounds like this is great. He's, he's trusting in the Lord as like a, a dread champion, a warrior with him who's going to, to lead him to victory. He's willing to sing praise to God. But if you keep reading, if you read from verse 14 to the end of the chapter, it's like somebody flipped a switch and the lights went out and it got really, really dark. His words sound a lot like Job, right? He says, verse 14, Cursed be the day in which I was born. Let not the day be blessed when my mother bore me. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father, saying, A baby boy has been born to you, and made him very happy. Right? It gets, it gets very, very dark as, as he continues on. Um, uh, look, look what he says there, verse 17, Because he did not kill me before birth, so that my mother would have been my grave and her womb ever pregnant. Why did I ever come forth from the womb to look on trouble and sorrow so that my days would have been spent in shame? Right? His, his experience here sounds, sounds a lot like Job. The cursing of the day of his birth, the, the person who brought forth the news, he wants nothing to do with living life. And while we don't have any explicit statements from the Lord rebuking Jeremiah's attitude here in chapter 20. If you flip back to Jeremiah chapter 15, Jeremiah poured out his heart in a similar way there, and you see some explicit statements from the Lord there in Jeremiah chapter 15. And so, uh, and so if, you, if you look there, look at, uh, look at chapter 15, verse 10. He says, Woe to me, my mother, that you have borne me as a man of strife and a man of contention to all the land. I have not lent, nor have men lent money to me, yet everyone curses me. And Jeremiah, Jeremiah goes on, and as he, he goes on, he essentially describes how, how he's been faithful to the Lord. The Lord called him into ministry, called him to, to proclaim this message of judgment to the nation of Israel, and, uh, and he feels like now he's getting the short end of the stick because he's persecuted, people curse him, he's an outcast from his people. His complaint here in chapter 15 comes to its height there in verse 18 where he says, Why has my pain been perpetual and my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? 
Will you indeed be to me like a deceptive stream, like with water that is unreliable? His discouragement and situation basically makes him say, in essence, Lord, are you being unfaithful to your word? Are you being unfaithful to me? It sure feels like you are. And that was essentially Jeremiah's attitude and the cry of his heart. And look then to the very next verse, verse 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, then I will restore you. Before me, you will stand. The way that the Lord expresses himself there, if you will return, shows that Jeremiah had something that he needed to turn from. Right? He'd, been, he'd been expressing this, this woe is me, poor pitiful me, and the Lord says, no, you need, to, you need to turn away from that. You need, to, you need to stop, you need to come back, you need to stand before me. And so Jeremiah and Job, there's a, there's a, lot, of, uh, a lot of similarities between, between the two of them. But nevertheless, the Lord calls Jeremiah back, calls him to return, calls him to a posture of trust rather than one of unbelief. He calls him to come back and be steadfast in the Lord's service once again. And Job, too, would be rescued from his despair in time. He'd cross the line here in his cursing and implicitly in his refusal to, to trust and submit to the fact that his times were in the Lord's hands. But he would be restored like Jeremiah. But it did take time. And so let's, let's flip back to, to Job 3 and look there to the end of the chapter, verses 24 through 26 there at the end of the chapter, because Job now gives the reasons for which he has spoken as he did. Now, obviously, we've got chapters 1 and 2, so we've, we've got the backstory. but Job kind of gives us an internal picture of what he's thinking as he pours out his heart in this way. Verse 24, For my groaning comes at the sight of my food, and my cries pour out like water. For what I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. And I am not at rest, but turmoil comes. Now aren't those words of verses 25 and 26 haunting? He fears something. And the very thing that he fears comes upon him. He dreads it, and it happens. And therefore he's not at ease, he's not quiet, not at rest. The turmoil comes. Everything that he has dreaded has happened to him. His experience had been harrowing. It had shaken him to the core. Now, on the one hand, it may be easy for us to, to sit here and, what, be Monday morning quarterbacks or whatever and, and be critical of Job. We look, though, at this chapter as, as outsiders. And we attempt, we should be attempting to evaluate Job's conduct on, on biblical standards. In other words, according to Scripture, was he right or was he wrong? What we should not be doing, and I hope none of us are doing and I'm certainly not trying to do this, is to look at Job here in a way of self-righteousness. Right? This man was one of the most, if not the most, righteous man of his day. And the pain he endured laid him in the dust, both figuratively and literally. If it had been me... I might have done much worse than Job. You might have done much worse too, right? None of, us, none of us knows. None of us have ever suffered the kind of thing that Job did. And therefore, we need to be 
need to be careful before we point finger. But again, what we're trying to do here is to evaluate just on the, on the basis of Scripture. Is this a, a healthy attitude or an unhealthy attitude? We don't want to, to be self-righteous. Martin Luther once commented on the despair of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 20. And he said, if you will meet with the actual experiences of practical life, you will understand. In other words, you can understand how somebody, how somebody gets there. How somebody arrives at the point of wanting to curse the day of their birth. And I don't know. Maybe you've been there as well. So what can we learn here? Other than that we're not supposed to curse our lives and the day of our birth when utter despair sets in. What can we learn here from chapter 3? Well, I think, I think we can glean several things. And so for one, when we take this chapter as part of the, the overall picture of Job's story here in the book, we learn that God makes his people strong out of weakness. Here in chapter 3, we see weakness and the infirmities of Job rather than strength. But God did not cast him off for all of his weakness. Rather, God strengthened him. I like the way that James Durham put it in his lectures on Job. He says, Therefore the best of saints with Jacob have a limp, that they may know the strength whereby they stand, and to whom they are obliged for the victory. God's end was not only that Job may have the victory, being tried, but that he might be a pattern to these that should come after and therefore he will have Job's infirmities to appear and yet do them away and give him victory. Bring him to the brink of despair and yet uphold him and give him a deliverance that other saints may not be discouraged, though their condition should be like his. Despite Job's situation, God strengthened him. Gave him deliverance, ultimately. We don't see the deliverance here, but it gets there. And does not Job's situation bear at least some resemblance to that of Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 with his thorn in the flesh, that passage that we read at the beginning? Paul, of course, pleaded with the Lord to take that thorn away, and the Lord said, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And so what did Paul say then? He said, Most gladly, therefore, I will boast of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God strengthens people in their weakness and gives them deliverance at last so that we might know that our strength is not in us, but it comes from God. The second thing to observe here is that when we compare the weakness of Job that we see here in chapter 3 with what Scripture says more broadly about Job, we learn that God is very, very gracious in the estimation of his servants. To quote Durham again, he said, When God reckons the grace of his children, he reckons it with large allowance. He reckons it with large allowance. Here we see Job's impatience. We see his infirmity. We see his weakness. But... Yet, James says to his readers, James 5.11, that they have heard of the endurance or the steadfastness of Job. Here we see Job speaking in ways that he ought not to speak. But yet, at the end of the book, although as we've seen, God was not pleased with everything Job had said, when he compares Job with his friends, the Lord says to his friends, he says, You have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. 
That's Job 42, verse 8. Now, truly, in Job, we see the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. We see that the Lord does not remember the sins of his people forever. Rather, he removes them from us. As far as the east is from the west, he casts them into the sea of his forgetfulness. He says of his people that he will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sins no more. And so, Christian friend, be encouraged by that tonight. Namely this, that your worst moment does not define you. If you are in Christ, your sins do not define you. Behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You're not who you were if you are in Jesus Christ. And even your sinful moments as a believer do not define who you are. Because if you've been born again, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now by all means, labor and strive against your sin. Put them to death by the aid of the Holy Spirit. But be encouraged by the example here of Job. Despite his sin, God regarded him as a godly man and sets him forward as an example of patience, though we see some measure of impatience here. And finally, tonight I want to offer you hope, because sometimes we get to the point where we feel like Job did in verse 23. We feel that God has hedged us in, as it were that God has put us in a box and there's, there's no way out. We feel the despair and we, we claw around for the door, but it's, it's not there. If it is, we can't find it. But I want you to know tonight that there is a way out. That there is deliverance in Jesus Christ. In Him there is forgiveness of sins, there is new life, there is comfort. I'm not saying that it will be a quick fix. Many times it will not be a quick fix. But nevertheless it is said in Psalm 112 verse 4 that light arises in the darkness for the upright. Light arises in the darkness for the upright. And I think that Psalm 77 is, is helpful to us in, in this regard as, as we think about situations in which we feel that there's, there's no way out, that God has, has hedged us in and we're stuck in despair. In Psalm 77, Asaph described the day of his trouble as a time in which his soul refused to be comforted, a time in which he was disturbed even when he remembered God. Just the memory of God made him disturbed. This was a time when he couldn't sleep this was a time that he was so troubled that he couldn't speak. And so what did, what did Asaph do? He thought about things and asked some questions. Some questions about the character and the actions of God. He said, will the Lord reject forever? And will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end Forever. Has God forgotten to be gracious, or has he in anger withdrawn compassion? Those are the questions that Asaph turned over his mind. Those are the questions that we'll probably be asking when we feel that we are hedged in, in despair. Asaph turned these questions over. And those are, again, the kind of questions that we ought to be thinking about. And we ought to answer them with a Bible open in our hands. Because if we don't have a Bible open in our hands, if we're not answering those questions in accordance with Scripture, when we're in despair, we're not going to have the right perspective. Our perspective easily gets skewed when we're in despair. And that's why we need to ask those questions and answer them with an open Bible in hand. And so let's just work through those questions. Will the Lord reject forever? And will He never be favorable again? What does the Scripture say? 
The answer to that is no. The Lord will not reject forever. He will be favorable again. We find in Psalm 103, verse 9, that He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. The question next, has His loving kindness ceased forever? Has God's loving kindness ceased when we feel hedged in by despair? Again, the answer is no. First John 4, 9 and 10. By this, the love of God was manifested to us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Has the loving kindness of God ceased forever? No. We have proof of it in that He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Next question. Has God's promise come to an end forever? Again, the answer is no. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare His own Son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Has God's promise come to an end? Well, no. He's made us new in Christ, and with him he will freely give us all things. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has his anger been withdrawn? Uh, In his anger has he withdrawn his compassion? No. Hebrews 7, 24 and 25. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who come to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. God has not forgotten to be gracious because we have a high priest in Jesus Christ who lives and abides for us to make intercession for us. And so when we're, when we're discouraged and we feel hedged in by despair... We need to work through those questions. In light of the gospel, with an open Bible in our hand, and we need to drink deeply of the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus for the strengthening of our souls in those times. We need to look again to the throne of grace and approach there boldly to find grace in our time of need. Again, sometimes it may feel like God has hedged you in, that there's no way out of the darkness. But again... Light arises for the righteous in darkness. And there is deliverance to be found in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we know living in a world of sin and death that suffering is real and that it may, uh, may come to us sometime. For many of us, it has come. Lord, we ask that in those moments, you would keep us, that you would calm us, that you would comfort us by the working of your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that when questions, real questions of your faithfulness haunt us, Lord, we pray that you would help us to answer those questions in the light of your word and not on the basis of our skewed perceptions of reality when we're in despair. Lord, we pray that you would comfort us, that you would strengthen us, that you would help us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.